Good morning. Today's scripture will come from Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, welcome to the book of Thessalonians, a new series called Counterculture. As we get to know Paul and the people that he wrote to, we're going to see how much his message ran against the culture that they lived in. For a second scripture reading, we're going to look at the first three verses. I, I do invite you to find the, the book of Thessalonians. Uh, it, it's in the New Testament, a little bit after um, Colossians, so Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you've, you've got Thessalonians. So if you can turn into this, we're going to, I think it'll, it'll, it'll serve us if you have it in front of you. Let's read the first three verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was, was a man a little bit like somebody waiting in an emergency room after someone they love has been in an accident, and they're just waiting for the news he was in Corinth at the time, and he replayed in his mind the last days in Thessalonica when he was hustled out of the city because of the mob that had grown up. And his friend, his new friend Jason, was being carried away by a mob to be taken to the forum. Paul himself had gone on to another town, Berea, and something much the same happened, and as it had happened in Philippi as well. Then he went on to Athens, and, um, and there was very, very little response. And now in, um, in Corinth, Paul was just sick with fear. Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica had been a particularly hard blow for him because it, it had just been such a promising response. So many people had responded. There were, as he went and preached in the synagogue, uh, Jews responded. And then a whole bunch of devout Greeks who had come to the synagogue because they were very attracted to monotheism. But, um, 
but then they, they realized like how, how they had been excluded from it, and, and the Christian message was exactly what they were waiting for. It says many of the leading women came as well, as well as some of the pagans. It was such a great start. Paul's plan with his preaching team was fairly straightforward. They were going to spend three days in the synagogue preaching, and then it says that they were starting to, uh, to start to work. They were making plans to stay there for a long time and support themselves because Paul just didn't like to take money from the people he was ministering to. After those logistics were settled, he was dying to get to the task of, as he put it, supplying what was lacking in their faith. Part of the reason that Paul felt so sick is because when he left so abruptly from, from Thessalonica, he felt like they were sheep and they were without a shepherd and he didn't know what was going to happen to them. But then Timothy, who had gone back to the city to see how they were doing, came back and, and the doctor came out of the waiting room and he's like, he's like Doc, are they going to be okay? And Timothy says, they're bruised, but they're not broken. They're going to be okay. And Paul was just, just his heart began to swell with joy. Now, Timothy also said, yeah, there's other things going on there, kind of like you'd expect um, a bunch of baby Christians in the second largest city in Greece. Let's see here. First of all, there's the synagogue leaders. They started a smear campaign against you. They're saying your, your gospel has no power and that you were just in it for what you could get. So, yeah, that's one thing. Uh, oh, yeah, and the pagans weren't happy. The uh, guilds had started to lock all the people out of the trades. So that's a problem. Uh, and the Aphrodite cult. Uh, you know, just a cesspool, and, and some of them weren't immune to that. So, yeah, there's that. And then apparently some of them had misapplied what you were saying about their coming of Jesus as like being maybe tomorrow. So they're sitting on a mountaintop waiting for him to come, and uh, they need to get back to work. But, but Paul's like, yeah, yeah, all that stuff, we'll handle that. But they're standing fast. They've given me their heart. And he was just elated. He, he, he said, We've got to strengthen them. They don't understand what's going on. Silas, I need you to, to get the parchment, and um, I need you to take this down. So here's, here's what I want you to say, Silas. Uh, start with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. What's that, Timothy? Oh, why would I include all of us? Well, I mean, because we were a team. We ministered to them together, and I think they'd be greatly encouraged if, uh, you know, if it was all of us together. So, yes, all three of us. Silas, what? Do I need to say that I'm an apostle? Well, some of these people need to hear I'm an apostle, but not the Thessalonians. They, they, they loved every word that I said. They gave me their heart. Okay, uh, where was I now? Uh, to the ecclesia of the Thessalonians. What, Timothy? Well, you think they're going to be confused by that. They're not going to be confused. I mean, yeah, I know that's the word for congregation back in the Old Testament for Israel. And I know that's their civic assembly, and they're not invited to it anyway. But, but it's exactly what I'm going for. You see, it, it grounds them in what God's been doing all throughout history and his people. And, and it's not what they're used to. It's not that kind of assembly. It's a whole new assembly. So that's exactly the word I'm looking for. They're a new people of God. This is a whole new thing. And, of course, they're not just any assembly, Timothy. They're, they're in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that, Silas? Yeah, I, I know I've never said it that way, in God. But, but what I'm trying to say here is that they're existing in God. They're created by him. Boy, we could talk all kinds of you know, ways about you know, how he's created them. But uh, I want them to know they're part of a new order. 
and a new creation. Okay, you got that? Good. All right, next. Grace to you and peace. Yeah, you guys see what I did there? Grace and peace. Yeah, I, I know you don't say, they don't say grace. They say karain, which means greetings or all joy, but, but grace, God's gift to you. God's empowering to you and peace. Yeah, the, the synagogue guys aren't going to like that. They'll say it's a, you know, we're appropriating shalom, but, but that's what's happened. When they have God's gift, it just, it just flows out of it, and now they have peace and wholeness with God. So, so what do you think, boys? Is this a good start? I mean, what I'm going for is I want it to be warm and, and inviting them to know what I know what God's doing. Okay, well, let's stop listening in now for just a second and talk about this. Paul shows us in this letter what his heart is. He wants to encourage this group of believers. He shows us what godly encouragement looks like. You can just feel it in this. He's positive. He's warm. He's grateful. He's creative. He's like creating new, new terminology. Uh, he, is, he is just overjoyed. And he's aware of what God's doing in and among them. And so Paul sets out to encourage this young congregation that he cared very deeply for. Now, what about you? Are there believers that you care deeply for? Now, I know that none of us are going to go, you know, we're not in, you know, foreign lands reaching unreached people groups, not all of us, but you have a microcosm. You have a world that the Apostle Paul would never be able to touch. Do you want to encourage that world? And how might we do that? I believe that we need to encourage the Christians that you know. We're going to do that by thanking God regularly for them in prayer. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So as Paul's letter was read and reread to this church scattered throughout this large city, uh, they would have noticed a couple of things about this prayer. Number one, it was a team event. Notice that he says, we thank God for you, which just reminds us that prayer is something we can do as individuals, and prayer is something that we do together. Now, it's encouraging when someone says, hey, I'm praying for you, but it's even more encouraging when somebody says, hey, there was a group of us, and your name was on our lips. We were bringing you before God. Notice that they are giving thanks. The team wasn't taking credit for anything. They were, they were thanking God for all the rich stuff that we just saw in verse 1. They were thanking God for this new assembly. They were thanking God for the grace that he put on them and the peace that these people now have with God the Father. And uh, they're thanking God, and they're saying, God, this is, this is all you. Thank you. Notice that their prayer is... You've heard of unconditional love, right? Love with no strings attached? This is unconditional thanks. They thank always, not just sometimes. And they don't wait to see if they're stacking up. They're not saying, like, give me that report. Let me see if, uh, okay, now we thank God. No, no, they're always thanking God. They're doing so continually. The Thessalonians knew that the, uh, the smear campaign was saying that Paul had abandoned them because he had left so quickly. And Paul is saying here, no, you're constantly on my mind. 
I am, I am bringing you up all the time. It's as Jesus said that we ought always to pray and not faint. And Paul just says, I'm not letting this go. I'm keeping you before God. Notice that they're mentioning them in their prayers. The, the believers listening to this would have thought, how amazing that they love us enough to bring us with our prayers because they were interested or they were very used to self-interested prayers. Okay? You got to remember that they were praying to Osiris and Aphrodite. They were even praying to a guy, a king. His name was Cabirus, and they thought this king was going to come back and restore their city in some kind of way. But the way the prayer worked is that, number one, you had to argue with the gods. All right? you, had to, you had to prove to them that you were worthy. And number two, you almost always brought yourself before them. But here we've got something entirely different, and they wouldn't have missed this. They would say, they're coming to God, they're in his presence, and they just mention us in their prayers. Because this is the kind of God that just, we don't need to plead with him and beg with him, we just need to say their names as we're in his presence. And because he's good, he is ready to bless. They would be amazed at the lack of, the lack of self-interest in these prayers. They would also have noticed that they thank God in their prayers for all of them. Again, we talked a little bit about the, the inclusivity of the gospel, where they would have been used to their categories, rich and poor, men, women, slaves and free. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, none of that. We pray for all of you without exception. And, and they would just have wondered about it because it was very unlike their civic assemblies where only the rich men could come and be there. Or even at the synagogues that some of them had been frequenting. Again, there was like, there was division in the entire thing. But Paul is saying, like, no, not at all. We pray for all of you. The fact they're thanking God for them always in their prayers constantly would have encouraged this young, unfinished congregation immensely. You know, as we seek to encourage the Christians that we know, right, in our world, we've got a tool that is a very powerful one. And if, if you have a toolbox at home or, you know, you've got a craft kit and you're looking for something and you find a tool that you forgot that you had, I'm wondering if grateful prayer may be that kind of tool. Because you've got the tools, Christian. If you want to encourage the Christians you know, the very first thing we do is grateful prayer. So what do we do? Pray. Ah, yes, that's a good start. You know, if, if, you, if you don't pray, this is just talking to God. This is just keeping an ongoing conversation. This is keeping the, the phone open all the time, just picking it up, praying, talking to God. Pray regularly. Don't, don't give up. Now, this may mean that we need, to, uh, we need to just keep this before before us. As you're interacting with the people that are in your world, the Christians that you know, just immediately start making a habit to say, I, I'm going to regularly be praying. And I'm going to keep praying for them. Pray with gratitude. You know, a lot of times we come with our list of things that we need, but a great place to start is just to start by thanking God for them. Pray for those in your sphere. Pray for the ones that you know. You've got a unique sphere. That could be work or school or your homeschool co-op or your hobby group or your community. Uh, pray for the sphere. You know, pray for those that you naturally care about. Right, the ones that are easy for you. And then extend it just a little bit further. Pray for all of them. Pray for the people you rub shoulders with that maybe rub you just a little bit wrong. And don't pray that you know, God would fix them. 
pray that he would bless them. Then finally, pray with the knowledge that God is working among them. You know, there's nothing more miraculous than, than salvation. And when you're interacting with a believer, you are interacting with something very, very miraculous. God's done a work in that person, and we need to see that. And so, encourage the Christian you know by praying regularly for them with thanksgiving. Second, encourage the Christians that you know by noticing what he's doing in them. We see this in verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father three things, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remembering is, is a, the second clause. So the, the main clause here is we give thanks. And then he says two things, making mention and remembering. Making mention just means that, hey, they're praying with thanksgiving. But then we're remembering something. He's going to remember three things about their development that makes him very grateful. Remembering is, is basically what we just did in communion. It's, it's drawing something from the past into our mind so that we can benefit from it right now, which is what we just did with communion. We do the same thing. As we think about somebody, we remember what God has been doing in their life so that we can benefit from it right now and then intercede with them into the future. For Paul's team, remembering fueled their gratitude. So he says, we give thanks. Well, why do they give thanks? Because we're remembering something about you. Now, before we note how they gave thanks and what they're remembering, I, I want you to once again look at the solidarity that Paul shows with this group. This wouldn't have escaped their notice. He says, we give thanks to our God and Father. You know, do you just realize what a transformation that is for Paul the Pharisee? He was the chief sectarian. He was the one who was dividing everybody. He would have looked down on these people that he loved so much. But now he's saying, my father and your father, he is no more my father than your father. You are my brother and sister. We're all his kids. We're siblings. God has done such a work in Paul's life. And that would have been very attractive to them. Now, what Paul and his company are remembering or calling to mind is God's work. I want to give you just a phrase here. Uh, I heard this in a little book that I read way, way, way back called The Cross-Centered Life, and it just stuck with me. Now, I don't know if it was original to that book, but the phrase was evidences of grace. I love that phrase because evidence, and in other words, we don't have the whole case we don't have somebody completely sanctified. They are not as holy as they are going to be. But we're seeing these glimpses of God at work. And we get good at spotting them and saying, wow, that's an evidence of God's working in your life. And so the evidences of grace that they saw, we see in these classic Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. I found it amazing that this is the first time that these three, this triad, appears in Christian literature. God was at work forming them, not in just to a new people of God, but making them new. He was working not just among them, but also in them. What was he noticing in them? Well, number one, their work of faith. He saw good works flowing out of them. Good works that were of faith, in other words, you could say good works that were produced by their faith. 
Now, you may call from the giving series a way back if you had joined us, I don't know, it was a couple months ago, where it talks about the churches in Macedonia that were giving even though they were poor. This is them. This is them. And, and the verse here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need anyone write to you, for you yourself have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul commends them that they don't need an apostle to hold their hand anymore. He says, you are, you are running well. Keep doing it. God has become their teacher, and brotherly love has become their habit. It overflowed their city into their region. So giving was definitely a part of their good works of faith, but what other kinds of things are, are good works? Well, if you were from a Jewish background, when you heard good works, you would have thought immediately the poor and the oppressed. That's what you would have thought, like do good to those who cannot pay you back. So think about things like visiting, giving, hospitality. That is what would have come into the Jewish mind. Now, not all of these believers were from a Jewish background. There were also Greeks. Now, Greeks would take that, and it was a Greek virtue to to give without any possibility of payment, to give without distinction. But they would expand it a little bit, not just to the poor and the downtrodden, but also to anybody who has some sort of claim on you. In other words, good works could be toward your family. Good works could be toward even the state. But Christian virtue is bigger than both of these. This includes ministry activities. So anytime you are moving forward to minister to somebody, to be a blessing to somebody who can't pay you back, that is a good work. Now, notice that this is the motivation. Very different, very different. It's of faith. In other words, motivated by faith. The language is a work of faith. You know, this may get a little fuzzy to us, so we have to think about what of faith means. It just means to flow from or be produced from. Now, you maybe have a little red flag going in your mind. You're like, I I thought salvation was not about works, all right? And and that's a good good point. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, We read in Titus, another epistle of Paul, that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So is work of faith the same thing as working for your faith? Well, not at all. Paul was a ferocious opponent of working for your faith. Um, he wrote to the, he, anytime somebody said Gentiles had to do Jewish rituals called the works of the law, he would oppose it. He wrote two books, Galatians and Romans, that just, just hammer that. But Paul is a big fan of faith as proved by good works. Elsewhere, he calls it in a, in a really great phrase, faith working through love. So when you hear works of faith, hear faith that is working itself out through love. And so one way that we can encourage Christians by knowing, noticing what God's doing in their lives is by looking at their good works that's flowing out of their faith. You really don't have to look far to, to see this in play. I mean, I mean, just for a second, I, I started thinking about this church. I started thinking about the, the foster families where their lives are demonstrating good works in this way. I think about those who keep up with a prayer list. You may not know this, but there's a group 
that keep up with a prayer list, and they regularly pray for all those people. Uh, they, we have members who volunteer hours, thousands of hours, at the hospital. I guess this is an announcement. At the end of October, uh, for the fifth Sunday, we're going to be taking a benevolence offering. And so you're going to have an opportunity to give toward an offering that's been a blessing to many in this congregation. That would be a good work. Those of you who give regularly and generously, again, a good work. I became aware of a ministry in Wilmington this week that there was a, a guy trying to get out of a, a job that was just killing him, but the tuition, he couldn't afford it. And this ministry just paid his $10,000 tuition just like that so he could move out of a career that was, was hurting him. A couple months ago, we had a, a moving crew. Somebody needed to move, and, and 10 people from this church showed up. These are good works that flow out of faith, and we need to be looking out for them. Second, the labor of love. So once again, we've got labor, and then this phrase, of love. Uh, your translation may help you out a little bit there and say your labor prompted or motivated by love, and those are good translations. You know, we may be thinking about this in just kind of generic spiritual terms, you know, like in vague, do good because of your love, but don't. It's a lot more concrete than that. Uh, Paul is talking about manual labor, the things that we do with our hands, the washing of dishes, the changing of diapers, doing a tough job day in and day out to support your family. All these are motivated by love. The Thessalonians knew this. They knew that Paul appreciated hard work. If you may remember, Paul was settling into, he says in this verse, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Apparently, Paul was a tent maker, and one of the ways he supported himself was through making tents. And he says, I did that. I labored in love. Paul's kind of also uh, telegraphing an issue he'd have to deal with labor later. You remember I said there were some people sitting on mountaintops waiting for Jesus and not working? Well, he's saying like, okay, I'm going to deal with that, but I appreciate you guys that are clocking in and going to work because of love. What brother or sister do you know who would be encouraged if you noticed their hard work? I do believe that there are different gifts at operation in the church. There are teachers there are people who labor in the word, but we have a fair number of people where you have service gifts, all right? Like if I called you out and brought you to this platform, you would just pass out. You would hate that. You don't want to be brought attention to. You don't want to be noticed. You just want to serve, and that is a gift from God, you know, and you're going to keep doing it whether or not somebody notices or not, but would it not encourage you if somebody said, I see your work. I see your work of love. I notice it. I think that would probably encourage your heart amazingly. We've got a few uh, teenagers and uh, kids in this service. Um, this place, this works itself out in the home a whole lot because you've got parents who love you and they work hard every day so that you can eat, so you can have shoes that wear. Now, I'm not trying to put anybody on a guilt trip. I'm just saying this works itself out in the home. This is a labor that flows from love and we should notice it. They notice the final thing, endurance of hope. Again, endurance feels like we know what that is, okay? It's like steadfastness and tenacity, but of hope. And, and, and again, some translations would help you out. Endurance inspired by hope. The thing that helped Paul, like that made him so excited, 
when he heard Timothy's report was their tenacity. Before he received the report, he felt like he was half dead with worry. That's like later on in this book, he says, for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. In other words, he said, I was, I was almost dead with worry with you. But now that I know you're standing fast, I'm alive again. And yes, they were being assailed, but they were standing fast. They were enduring. And here's the question. What gave these believers in the second largest city in Greece surrounded by all this opposition and temptation and persecution, what gave them courage to endure? Was it an inner resolve where it says, I dug deep and I found it within myself? Well, you'll hear that sign of language out there, right? I dug deep and I found it within myself. But no, their endurance was inspired by what? Hope in Jesus Christ. There's a, uh, a commentator, his name is Gordon Fee, that he, he was just so helpful. He said that hope is a content word. And, and he didn't expand on that all that much, but my mind started to think about it. So hope is like a bucket that you carry stuff around in. And it's not just like air that's in that bucket. It's real concrete things. Like what is our hope in? Our hope is in Jesus. Well, there were lots of Jesuses back then. It's like Joshua, all right? So Jesus but this is Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, oh, okay, so he had a birthplace. You mean the one that was, was crucified? Yeah, that Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Uh, but they said that he rose again. Right, the one that rose again. So we have Jesus of Nazareth, a crucified Messiah that rose again, and he's coming back. That's my hope. That's the content of my hope. And because I believe that 100%, I endure through whatever I am going through. I have tenacity. It's not just some kind of vague expectation that that somehow there's going to be a better future. It is a solid confidence rooted in the expectation of Christ's coming. Whatever I'm enduring is not in vain. I can press through because Jesus is coming back. And yeah, some of them had questions and bad applications that needed addressed, but it was having exactly the effect it was supposed to have, a concrete hope and confidence that gave them the power to endure. So through the temptation of Aphrodite's temples, from the opposition of the Jewish leaders, from the persecution of the guilds, and and even the government later on, they were going to persevere because they knew Jesus was coming. What brother or sister do you know that would be encouraged if you noticed how much they endured? Through temptation. You may have somebody who who you know they are fighting a sin that was life-dominating. And you say, keep going. I noticed that you are enduring through that. Or somebody who is, is being, being pressed on at work. They're being resisted because of their Christianity. And you say, I see it. I see what is go- you're going through. Through the drudgery that can be the stuff of life. The more stories I listen to, my wife brings lots of them home from, from the, the school that she works. I just realize, like, life is just hard. <laughs> it, it's not easy for anybody, but when somebody says, I see what you're going through and you're enduring, would that encourage them? In a particularly uh, hard time in my life, I had a friend uh, say these words to me. He said, I think we underestimate the value that God places on endurance. And then he cited James 5.11, and he was talking about the prophets, and he says, we count them blessed who remain steadfast. You know, and those words, I remember them to this day simply because somebody saw 
that I was enduring and said, you know what that is? That's endurance and hope. And your words can have a similar effect. So I'm going to close with a story here that I, I think will press this home a bit. It's from, it's from a book that I've been reading. And I've adapted it a little bit. But there was a counselor that was helping a guy, let's just call him Alan, uh, with a pattern of broken relationships. All right? He was on multiple, he was on like multiple marriages, and uh, he finally just agreed that he was not going to sweep it under the rug anymore. Although Alan was persistent, he was a good provider, he had a passion for life, he was hard to live with because he was a perfectionist with the accompanying critical spirit and anger that sometimes comes with that. Alan related how his father was a United States Marine. He served at Iwo Jima, and one of his jobs was to defuse the bombs that had not exploded. He often had to come up with these strategies to neutralize them, and there was absolutely no margin for error. And so if he made an error, he and the people possibly around him would die. And so... As Alan was thinking about this, he concluded, I guess it's not surprising that when I earned a 98% on my test, my father would focus on the 2% that was wrong. This reminds me, when you're looking to encourage the believers that you know, don't wait for perfection before you affirm them. Because if you do, you probably never will. Instead, simply give thanks for them regularly in your prayers Cultivate spiritual eyes to notice God's work in them and all those Christian virtues. And, and let me close with this. I, I'm going to give us a little bit of homework. Dirty word, kids. I know you guys are back in school. You guys are back in school. All right. But a little bit of homework this week. Why don't you try to pray for some believers that you know? Give thanks to God for them. And then... Think about noticing something in them, that God's at work, especially those that are in process, all right? They're the ones who are going to need it most. And then here's the thing. Tell them. This week, pray for somebody, notice what God's up to, and tell them sometime this week. There won't be a quiz afterwards, but I think that this is going to benefit us. And so, what a great way to encourage the Christians you know. Let's pray. Father, I'm excited to spend time with uh, this group of believers. I'm excited to spend time with, with Paul and his team. God, I pray your blessing on our assembly. Lord, you put us here at 316 Red Mill Road. You put us in this quad state region. And you have given us a wide influence. So, Lord, I pray that you would equip us pray you would encourage us. I pray that this week that we would encourage one another, the people that we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.